Always be prepared. You know, I was thinking as I was going through this section of scripture um, about, they talk about like a, um, a theological big idea. What that is, is you look at what the major theme is in that portion of scripture. And is there something theologically, like in the whole Bible, that relates to what's happening here? And, and there's this one verse that just kept coming to my mind as I was reading through this. And it was in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. It says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, which Paul did. He set apart Christ as Lord of his life. And then this verse is, is Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And he did that. He was prepared and he wouldn't let an opportunity pass by to share the name of Christ. And as we go into the scripture, I just I think we should pray first that um, this, God would just open our hearts to what he would have us to learn this day. So let's pray, and then I want to talk about always being prepared. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. And Lord, I just pray that you would help me to understand and know better the God of this word that you would help me to appropriate in all of us the, the lessons here, not for head knowledge, but, Lord, that our lives would be changed. The Bible was given not to increase knowledge. The Bible was given to change lives. And, Lord, I pray that you'd help me to just follow hard after you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I looked at this section of Scripture, there were three different uh, main points that came to mind. One is, I call it the red carpet rollout. You could see what was going on when you had the king and you had the governor and they were all dressed up in all their regalia and so on. And I called that the red carpet rollout. The second portion, I see the power of a personal testimony. The power of a personal testimony. This is the third time that Paul is is mentioned as testimony. Luke's the writer of the, of the book of Acts, but this is the third time. There's power in a testimony. Third, the gospel requires a response. The gospel requires a response. Whether you choose to follow Christ, whether you choose to reject Christ, or whether you choose to wait. I mean, there's a response. You've been given information. You need to respond. Before meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul considered himself an enlightened man. He was a pious Jew, it says in Romans 9. We read about that. He was a scholar under the teachings of Gamaliel, Acts 22. And a Pharisee of Pharisees, it says in Philippians. But he was living in spiritual darkness on that road to Damascus. He knew the law. But he did not realize that the law was given to direct people to Christ, it says in Galatians 3.24. The law could not save. Saul was self-righteous, a religious leader who thought he was fighting for God. But he was fighting against God. James 4.6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is what I found. The weaker we are, the harder we lean on Christ. The harder we lean on Christ, the stronger we grow spiritually. When I know that I, it's not me, it's Christ in me. I need Jesus. I can't do it by myself because I couldn't do it at all. And what does it say that was uh, preached 
not long ago about the vine and the branches. Jesus says that I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, which literally means settle in me, make my rest in me. My, if you abide in me and I will in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what the scripture says. Henry Ironside says, God is looking for broken men. Men who have judged themselves in the light of the cross of Christ. When he wants anything done, he takes up men who have come to the end of themselves, whose confidence is not in themselves, but is in Jesus. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Paul's testimony is presented by Luke. The first time was in chapter 9 at Paul's conversion. In chapter 22, Paul witnesses before the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem. And now in Acts 26, Paul testifies before King Agrippa II in Caesarea. What do people mean when they say that they've had a road to Damascus experience? What happened on the road that prompted Luke to write about it three times in the same book? The events that happened that day were not only describing what happened to the Apostle Paul, but also provides a clear picture of conversion for all people. One. We may not have a dramatic conversion experience in which we're confronted by the Lord and blinded. But each of us is commissioned by Jesus to live obediently to him, John 14, 15. To love one another in his name, 1 John 2, 23. To know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in death, Philippians 3, 10. And to tell the world about the wonderful riches of Jesus Christ. Now we see the red carpet roll out. This must have been an awesome scene to behold. Paul's audience would have been captivated. King Agrippa II would have come into the room dressed in his finest purple robe. A crown, rings, maybe even a scepter in his hand. Bernice would have also been had on beautiful clothes. The red carpet was rolled out for the royalty. This was a state visit. With all the glamour and ceremony, Paul would speak to the heart of a king. He was, would not be distracted by the outward adornment. The governor and the king were looking for what to write about to the emperor, it says. Paul was focused on sharing the gospel by speaking life into lost souls. Festus presents the main attraction. He says, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present, present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem here, loudly declaring that he ought no longer live. This is probably the most honest answer that Festus has given. He's admitting that the desire of the Jews all along was to kill Paul. Who was this man, Paul? The Bible doesn't describe Paul. Many have speculated that he had problems with his eyesight by reading Galatians 6.11 or 4, Galatians 4, 13-15. There is somewhat of a famous description of Paul, though, but it does not come from the Bible. It's found in the apocryphal acts of Paul and Tekla. The work is uninspired. It's unauthoritative. It contains some teaching that's not found in the scripture. It's hard to know if the description of Paul here is real or simply fiction. But here's what it says about Paul. It says he was a man small in size, 
baldly headed, bandy legged, well built with eyebrows meeting. Rather long nose, it says, full of grace. For sometimes he seems like a man, it says, and sometimes he had the countenance of an angel. The name Paul was found, it was from the Roman family of Paulus, which meant small or humble in Latin. Paul may not have been powerful in stature and strength, but I guarantee you his life and writing impacted the world powerfully for Jesus. Verses 26 and 27 We look at, so what is the crux of Governor Festus's problem? Governor Festus has a problem. Paul has appealed to Caesar, and he didn't have anything to write. Well, that's going to go over well with Caesar Nero. He confesses he didn't have any charge to write the emperor. He has asked for King Agrippa for some help to write the charges after listening to Paul. The emperor would not be too happy. For a Roman citizen like Paul to be sent to him without an accusation of a crime. Paul had been locked up for two years already. It's interesting also that Paul was not legally bound to attend this inquiry. He'd already uh, uh, asked to go before Caesar. He had appealed to Caesar. He had, uh, thus, he was taken out of Festus's jurisdiction. But Paul would not miss an opportunity to preach the gospel in in such an important setting. And this is the key verse that I want to refer to again. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. I think that's the most important part to begin with right there. In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. He's He's Adonai. He's a master. We're his servants. And he's called us to go and to proclaim the gospel. And what does Paul do? Always be prepared to give an answer who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. There is power in a personal testimony. It has been said you can argue with someone who has an argument. But you can't argue with someone who has had an experience because it's your experience. How can somebody argue with that? It's your experience. A personal testimony, it's your testimony. When you testify, you're being a witness and sharing with people about your experiences with God. Testimonies give you a powerful way to praise God for how he has changed your life. The more you walk closely with Jesus, the more you can say, you can't make me doubt Jesus. I walk too close with him. I know him. Paul knew Jesus well. Paul first did business with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He preached about the risen Lord wherever he went. He sang songs in a jail in Philippi, reasoned with Greeks in Athens, fearlessly proclaimed the name of Christ, in synagogues, before the Sanhedrin, and now before kings and Roman governors. J.I. Packer wrote this, There is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. When you truly know God, you have the energy to serve Him, the boldness to share Him, and the contentment in Him. Paul didn't just have head knowledge about Jesus. He could boldly proclaim, I have been crucified with Christ. 
is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A personal testimony makes two statements and has a question. This is the one, this is who I was in Christ. This is who I was before Christ. This is who I am now in Christ. Are you interested? Paul can say, this is who I was before I knew Jesus. This is who I am now in Jesus. Are you interested? Because Jesus can change your life. Paul, I am not a person that I used to be. But I know that God has not finished me with me yet. I'm under construction by the hand of the master craftsman. The Holy Spirit working in me. There's not a completion date while I'm here on this earth. He's working with me to the day I die. The world is not our home, but we are being refined daily to reflect the image of Christ in our lives. It should be our desire to live more for God today than yesterday and be more holy this hour than the last. That was said by Francis Asbury. I truly believe that. Paul feels blessed for the opportunity to speak. The English word opportunity is derived from the Latin phrase ob and portu. In ancient times before modern harbors, ships had to wait for the timing of the tide before they could make it safely into port. Thus, ob portu described the ship waiting for the port, ready to seize the moment when they could ride the tide into the safe harbor. The captain knew that if he missed the passing tide, he missed the opportune, the ship would have to wait for another tide to come in. God gives us many opportunes. But we must be spiritually wise and spirit-filled in order to see them and seize them. Paul seized the moment. He saw the opportunity. Paul's not on trial here. He's preaching the gospel. This is interesting. In Luke Chapter 21, the same author that wrote Acts, Luke 21, 12 through 13, Jesus said this. I should write this down. When I came across this, I mean, that was like a revelation there. But before all these things, Jesus says, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead you to an opportunity for testimony. The way it says in my Bible, it says, this will result in you being a witness to them. That's exactly what happened. What Jesus said in Luke 21 is exactly what's going on. And right now, between Paul, before, as Paul standing before the governor Festus and King Agrippa II, Paul considered himself, it says, fortunate. Agrippa was acquainted with Jewish ways and understanding. He was a Roman official in charge of the temple. Paul could present the claims of Christ to this influential man and see how the Lord would work. Paul's reputation was well known. In Acts 22.3, Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated by Gamaliel, Strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all here today. Gamaliel was one of the most distinguished rabbis of that time. He was the grandson of the famous Hillel, 
who is still reviewed, revered by Orthodox Jews. Paul says as a Pharisee that he was as Jewish as anyone could be. In Philippians 3, 5, and 6, Paul writes, Circumcised on the eighth day, the tribe of Israel, tribe of ben- nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is the law, found blameless. In fact, his name was after the first king, King Saul, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, just like he was. He was saying, in effect, This is who I was in my testimony. This is who I was. I was born a Jew, not a proselyte. My Jewish roots are deep, and they are clear. I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem, the holy city, lay on the border of my territorial, uh, my tribal territory of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews in language, in attitudes, and lifestyle. He emphasized this hope and promise. If you look in uh, verses seven, six through eight, he mentions hope three times. That's the one great thing about the Christian life. There's hope, hope. If you, in fact, I remember this. It says, "With man, with man, there is a hopeless end, but with God, there's an endless hope. With man, there's a hopeless end. You have no hope. You're dead in your trespasses and sins." It says, "But with God, there is an endless hope." And it's found in Jesus, because he is the blessed hope, it says. Why did the ruling Jews hate Paul so much? Frankly, as I look at that, I think of this. They hated him because he used to be one of them. He said that he used to do everything possible to oppose Jesus. If you remember, Paul says, I was there when Stephen was stoned in Jerusalem, giving my approval under the authority of the chief priests. I persecuted Christians. I was just like you were. But then I found Jesus. Things are different. Things are different. I was obsessed to punish the way, even forcing them to blaspheme. Remember the The name The Way was a way that they identified the Christians because Jesus said, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when it talks about the way, it's talking about the way of Christianity. I even traveled great distances, it says, to persecute them. I truly thought that I was doing God's will by pursuing, punishing, and penalizing those that were following Jesus. That is who I was. Now I want to tell you how Jesus changed my life. King Agrippa, this is my testimony. I had a life-transforming encounter with the resurrected Jesus. Under the authority and the commission of the chief priest, I was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. This is my experience. This is my testimony. Can't be refuted. It's mine. I met Jesus. I came under his authority, and I was given a new commission. It was so real. There was a bright light, King Agrippa, brighter than the sun, King Agrippa, blazing around me and my companions. I heard a voice saying in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard to kick against the goats. I understand that to mean that I was actually fighting God. In my fighting, it was useless resistance. I could not stop. I could not stop the spread of the gospel. Just as an ox would kick against a goad or a sharp spike, the ox was only hurting itself. I was only hurting myself, King Agrippa. 
I asked, who are you, Lord? And the response was, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. I was, I was, it was the resurrected Jesus who was before me. Paul became devoted to a person and not a cause. He saw nothing else before him and lived absolutely for no one else but Jesus. Jesus identifies himself to, to Saul and makes an interesting statement. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus is the head of the church. And we are called his body, the body of Christ. And the head feels the pain when the body's hurt. Jesus feels our pain. He identifies with us. Jesus hadn't gotten Paul's atten- hasn't gotten Paul's attention and has, has gotten Paul's attention and has a rescue mission for Paul as a missionary. Paul is appointed as a servant and a witness of what he has seen and what Jesus would show him also in the future. This is an important thought right here. I don't know if you've caught this before, but the expression is from darkness to light. It's a, speak, it's a figure of speech that's of common characteristic in Paul's writings. He uses it in Romans 13, 12. Gone from darkness to life. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, gone from darkness to life. In Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. Colossians 1, 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. It must be important because it's throughout the Bible. He's gone from darkness to light. The salvation releases us from Satan's power. Offers us forgiveness of sins. And positionally sets us apart to God by his redeeming work. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Saul was immediately obedient to the vision. I think that's an important point. Tells him, get up, go to Damascus. He's obedient to the vision. And that's what he's saying to, not only to the the Sanhedrin that's there and to governor that's there, but he's also telling that to King Agrippa. I was obedient to what the vision showed me to do. Shouldn't I have been? And he was. Obedience is absolutely essential in a Christian's life. John says, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. This is what the Lord told me to do wherever I went. He says, I will preach that you should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their good deeds, Acts 26.20. I think Paul... This is my own thinking. But I think Paul was focused on one, this one soul while he was offering his testimony. He mentions King Agrippa's name three times in the testimony. He's always, King Agrippa, you know. King Agrippa. You see that in Acts 26.2, Acts 26.19, Acts 20. He keeps coming back right at the king. Paul's message was to repent and to turn to God. He preached to all who would listen, both Jew and Greek. He was attacked by the Jews because he went to the Gentile, as they called them, the Gentile dogs. The Jews detested them. And Paul was offering mercy and salvation from God to the Gentiles. I'm glad he did because I'm a Gentile. (laughs) Paul is saying that God helps even now as he testifies to what God has called him to do. And now Paul strengthens his argument even more. He says, he is saying that he is following the pattern of Moses. 
and the other prophets and what they taught. Jesus also pointed out in the Old Testament the Messianic prophecies. Notice this is in the Gospel of Luke as well. I think it's not by coincidence that Luke and Acts are sort of tied together. It's the same author. Luke writes, Jesus said, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then he says in Luke 24, 44, And now he said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things which are written to me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. They're fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament keeps pointing to Jesus. And that's Paul's point. And he says again to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Talking about his resurrection, Luke 24, 46. He's stressing that Christianity is not a heresy. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse 23, you see the summary of the gospel right there. Paul says it in one sentence. He goes right here and he says, that the Christ would suffer, and that as, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So Governor Festus has probably listened and had enough. So he says, Paul, sort of like this, if I put it in today's words, Paul, you're crazy over this Jesus. You're crazy over this Jesus. It's funny because the word for mad or insane, the word that's used here is the word we get mania or maniac. Paul asserted his sanity. And once more he turned to King Agrippa again. Because now he's got him sort of in a corner. He's got to make a decision because the gospel requires a response. And he says, Paul asserted his sanity once where he says, Paul knew that Christ's death, resurrection, and the beginning of the church couldn't have escaped Agrippa's attention. He lived in that area. He knew that. King Agrippa was well-schooled in Judaism, the Christianity. I mean, he had to know what was going on. He's a ruler over that area. What was happening? It, he, Christianity wasn't a secret society that was happening. Paul pressed the issue with a straightforward question to Agrippa. He's going to nail it right here. And he has, he's faced with a decision. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? <laughs> I know you do. Now think about it. Who's really on trial here? Who's, King Agrippa now faces a dilemma. If he says yes, Paul had him. Paul would go just refer back to the Old Testament. He said, Paul would press him to recognize the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. If he said no, he would be in trouble because all the devout Jews who were there accepted the message of the prophets as the word of God. So what was he to do? Well, King Agrippa evades the question. He's a good politician. He can't claim ignorance. He anticipates Paul's next question, like a good lawyer would. And he would be stuck if he answered one way or the other. So Paul gives a gracious response to the king. But he had planted a seed in the heart of Agrippa. The king rose. He's like, that's enough. <laughs> in fact, I like the way that he says this. 
I'm going to read this right here. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long? He's taking the opportunity, right? I pray that God, that not only you, but all that are listening to me today, may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose with Bernice and the governor while Paul stayed in the room in chains. What's interesting about this scene is that the governor and the king declared to one another that Paul was not deserving of death or imprisonment. And that seems to be a continual theme as you go through. If Luke is saying that he was innocent, he was innocent. But he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But I really wonder who was being investigated here. Paul had shown them the light of freedom in the resurrected Jesus. And they chose to close their eyes and return to the bondage of their sins. Paul was in chains, but he was free in Christ. The governor and the king were free from the shackles, but they were still enslaved, dead in their trespasses and sins. I read this before a couple years ago. I keep this in my wallet, and I thought this was probably appropriate as a conclusion for this message today. Because Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And this was written by an African pastor who was martyred for his faith. But I pull this out of my wallet every once in a while to remind me of who I am in Christ and my calling in Christ. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast and I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. And I won't let look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. And my future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dream, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarf goals. I am no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, pop, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognized or praised or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on his presence. I walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road be narrow. My, ro- may, my road be rough. My companions fool. But my guide is reliable. And my mission is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder in the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am disciple of Jesus. I must give until he comes, and when he comes... For his own. He will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Young African pastor martyred for his faith. That was found on him. So as application, as I look at this, the message is clear to me. 
To me, it's always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. Whether it's in prison in Philippi, whether it's in Athens on the hill, Mars Hill, whether it's, you know, before governors or kings. Paul's defense before Agrippa was much more than a protest of innocence of the charges. He spoke of a risen Savior and the experiences he knew of knowing a resurrected Jesus. Today is a lesson of showing how Scripture can be woven into your personal testimony as a compelling witness and the power of a changed life. Every time you tell someone about Jesus, you're part of writing a new chapter in the unfinished story of the church. Have you written out your testimony? Have you practiced it? Have you prayed through it? Have you shared it? No one can argue with you about your testimony. It's your testimony. It's your experience. Someone out there needs to hear it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's what Paul did. That's what we should do. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us not to be ashamed of the gospel. But Lord, we know that there's power. And you told us in Acts 1.8 that they were supposed to wait in Jerusalem. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And it says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Acts takes us to that whole story. It's taking us all the way from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. Paul's going to Rome. And Lord, we thank you for his testimony. It empowers us to be even bolder for Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.